I was reading this, I was reading, thinking how applicable it is to myself as an individual. Doesn't have to be just with me. If I pay attention, I can, it can help me. You mean? I, uh, some of the ideas. You mean help yourself with yourself, or help yourself with others? Help myself with myself. Yeah, it's true. We have to be our own leader for our own lives. Our own mental citizens are always trying to break out and revolt. We have to keep them in line and win them in the right way. No, it's, it's, it's completely true. And actually, it's a very good point. Okay, any other questions or thoughts or comments from last week? Or All right, there's a, uh, we did type up this time, print up for you this time, the reading schedule. I don't remember what it is for next week, but it's there. It's either one or two chapters. We're reading 25 or 30 pages a week. So whether that comes out to be one or two chapters depends on the chapter, obviously. All right. Um, why don't you not pass it out now, if that was what you were about to do. Thank you. It's hard enough to hold people's attention without their having an absolute reason to pass it back and forth. <laughs> one time, Asha, which are the chapters that are um, okay, one, two, three, and six are not changed, and the others are all different, and they have made up many Xeroxes, so um, it's not a problem. All right. Um, I, I was, uh, when I went home last week, I was extremely pleased with all the discussion that we'd had. I really, um, and, I, and I was... Uh, as I was coming into this chapter too, especially when you read this chapter when Swami starts talking about leading a nation and dealing with other nations and democracies versus monarchies, and um, you have to sort of stand back and realize the perspective from which he works. It's just not, he's not working from a small level. Uh, he, he often talks in his own life about having been William, William the Conqueror's son, Henry, having been Henry I, really essentially the first king of England. And in fact, it's really quite interesting how often he'll weave into his conversation talking about the, the events of this time, the future of Ananda, the relationship between SRF and Ananda, himself as a disciple. For those of you who might not be aware, Paramahansa Yogananda, Master, said that he was William the Conqueror in a previous incarnation. And many of the people who figure prominently in his life now figured prominently in his life then. And in as much as uh, it's a his historical fact you can read to a certain extent. History, of course, in fact, Master said most of the history of William was written from the English point of view, and they were the one who gave him the name the Conqueror. And uh, in fact, Swami himself said he was raised in England. I mean, he went to school in England for a number of years. And William did, did, is not lauded as a hero because he came from France and he conquered, well, even though there really was no England until William came as such, and especially Henry was the one, his son Henry, was the one who really established the country of England and the system of government and many of the things that are now England was really established by Henry. So by the time a person is a yogi, especially by the time a person is a great world-renouncing yogi, which is what you see in Swami's life, you have to appreciate that you've been through all of the cycles um, that human beings go through, power, leadership, wealth. Was it last week in here that I was talking about the teacup? Was that when I was discussing it? And so for a person to have the kind of uh, instinctive leadership capacity and the kind of influence, not merely that Swami has now, but more, more, more in truth that he will have as decades go by. And this is a person who's had that before.
In fact, um, and he himself states it as Henry, uh, a number of years ago, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, a group of us went to England with Swamiji, uh, Durga Vidura, myself, uh, my husband, of course, David. I think the Warners were with us, and, uh, well, there were 11 somehow, so O'Brien and Lisa Powers. We'd been in India, and then we went to Assisi. Some of us had been in India. We went to Assisi, and Matthew Sloan, who lives here now, who who is English and was living at Assisi, we pressed him into service to come to England with us to drive on the left side of the road so we wouldn't be killed. <laughs> so he lived, uh, he lived in Hastings, which is right where we were going, and he rented a 12-person van and put the 11 of us in it in our luggage. And Swamiji sat in the front seat with him, and we tootled around a great deal of the English countryside, and uh, Mystic Harp had just come out. And so we had Mystic Harp on the CD player, and this van was, you know, because there were so many of us, it was like a really a little self-contained world. Swami and Matthew in the front, and the rest of us lined up in the back, and uh, somebody leaned over and said, we are touring England with one of her former kings. <laughs> Which was really true, because it was the same landscape, the same countryside that we... It was a very um, evocative experience, is the only thing I can think of. Evocative of what? I'm not sure. But there was just this aura about that whole experience, especially being in that van, sort of. Swamiji was very calmly just looking out the window. And Swamiji will often make comments about governments and nations and uh, politics and so on. He, For example, I mean, this might not seem in itself uh, that significant, but it's the way he says it. When he's talking, whenever he talks about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, he always says, Israel simply can't give up the Golan Heights. You know, they simply must have the Golan Heights because they have to be able to see, otherwise their enemies can shoot down on them. They have to maintain that strategic position. But he says it not like a citizen commenting on politics at all, but like an individual who's had to face and make those kind of decisions over and over again, and he just makes it with that kind of a simple statement. So there's an authority that he brings to this that is not obvious if you just look at this lifetime. When Swami really talks about the course of nations... And also, I, uh, another theme I'm emphasizing in this, because I think it's important, is Swami's own perception of the importance of this book. And in this particular book, he's talking about Machiavelli. And Machiavelli instructed princes and kings on how they should be princes and kings. And Swamiji is offering an alternative to princes and, to princes and kings and elected representatives of government, saying, look, these are leadership principles that can be practiced from the lowest to the highest level. And this is all part of what he sees this book as bringing, which is the kind of understanding that we can really look at it differently. I was uh, reflecting today. I watched uh, I watched the movie The Little Princess, not the one with Shirley Temple, but the other, the more recent version. The, the basic theme of it is the daughter being left in the boarding school because the father, the mother is dead. The father has to go off to war. And it's the First World War, and he's uh, wounded badly, and they lose contact, and the child thinks she's an orphan. And, of course, then he appears, and it's, it's a marvelous tearjerker. It's really a wonderful little film. And uh, I was just looking at war. And I know that I myself have stood up here and spoken about the fact that there is such a thing as righteous war. And there are times, and Swami even refers to it, there are times when very difficult decisions have to be made, 
And decisions that are not right for individuals sometimes have to be made by leaders for groups because that's the demands of the time and the leader has to have the courage. He says cowardice is not attractive in individuals or in groups. There has to be the courage to face into what has to happen. And simultaneously, I had, not simultaneously, but as a parallel reality, I was reading a whole bunch of quotes that someone sent me by Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein made many statements about war, you know, just unequivocally condemning it as, as beyond comprehension of stupidity. I mean, anybody would, when you think about it. And in this little movie, you're just watching just the, um, the extraordinary, impossible human suffering that's imposed upon people because of the fact that they have to go out there and shoot each other or bomb each other or gas each other for what possible cause? Just the, the sheer idiocy of it. And yet, in this world, these crazy things happen all the time. And Swamiji comments in this book, in here, about um, that just sometimes very, very difficult choices have to be made, and there's just simply no way around it. And, and his um, guideline here is really to give... Oh, what, what, I was, what I was really going at with this is that there's got to be a better way. And these are all obvious statements, because what is the name of this book? Hope for a Better World. You know, there has to be hope for a better world than the one we've lived in, people are, because people are becoming more aware. He states in this that people used to just take things as they appeared. You just The way the world looked was the way the world was, and you didn't think about it. It appeared as though the earth was the center and the planets and everything moved around us, so they did. And then Copernicus and others came and, and took that apart. And it appears as though people who speak other languages are their enemies, our enemies, so they are. And men have to do their duty and they have to go off and be shot. And, well, that's just the way it is. But now people are becoming much more thoughtful and actually asking the question, does this make any sense? But everything begins on the causal level. And we, we sit here and we think, well, this is just a little book. But uh, the, what we're referring to, and you know, this whole book was inspired by a book called Books That Changed the World. Because it is possible through the power of ideas to really shift consciousness. And that's certainly, by the power of ideas and the power of example, what we're here doing. What, what was the life of Christ? It was the power of example and the power of ideas. Especially as Paul articulated it, Christ died on the cross. And he just, you know, just faded away. He was just there. He died. A few people knew he was resurrected, and that was apparently it. But there was a, a, a divine force and an extremely powerful idea there of the Savior and uh, love one another, and by your love you shall know them. And what is the greatest commandment? To love one another, thy neighbor as thyself. This, is, this was just an idea. It was a divinely inspired idea. And it was given the force of the ages by the consciousness of the avatar, but still, it was just an idea. It was from the causal level that Paul and the others started putting energy behind, and then that energy began to manifest as a certain way of life, and here we are, and the world is completely different. And it was different, made different, because a prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. And that's just exactly where we are now. There's there's these, as I was talking last week, there's these collision of forces. You have on the one hand, even as we sit here today, these just people are just still doing this thing out there. They're still, and it's not as if 
I'm, I'm, it's interesting because I'm getting more and more communications, mostly indirectly, but some directly, from friends who are not Americans, Germans, uh, French people, Indians, who are just basically saying, what is wrong with you Americans? You know, people who are our personal friends. What is wrong with you people? What is wrong with your president? You know, this whole sort of, like, Americans have gone berserk. It doesn't really feel berserk from here. Are we just deluding ourselves? Are they deluding themselves? And we don't feel like we're, we're gone crazy, but you don't really know. There's just these, these collision forces that are happening all over the planet. And you have um, alternate realities in Korea and in the Middle East and in other places. And I, I just won't even comment about Iraq. I, would, I just don't have any idea you know, what's really going on there, whether it's just craziness or whether there's validity to it. Who knows? But nonetheless, what you see, as Swami Kriyananda put it, he said, all you have to do is listen to the music. You can see that the world is, just wants to explode into violence. You can tell a lot by what's popular. The music is just, is just people trying to explode into violence, just winding themselves up into, into a greater and grainy, greater and greater cacophonous frenzy. And simultaneously, you have so many people saying, why are we doing this? You have people all over the planet in all the countries saying, why are we doing this? Like, what, what is keeping us from uniting ourselves? And so Swami writes this book with this passionate force given to him from Master to put these ideas into articulate form that there is hope for a better world. And he's focused it around the small community solution because he's trying to really sort of say we can live differently and these are the premises. And among other things, he's also trying to say you, you, you're right, you really can't solve this problem on the level of nations. But you can solve this problem on the level of individuals. And when enough individuals have the right vibration and there really is an alternative to the mess that we see around us, it'll gain force. I, I've often, um, Swami himself has talked about it like this. He's often emphasized the fact that you know, the great changes that happen in society do not happen as mass movements. They happen as some small group of people generally interacting with itself that creates sufficient magnetism that it, it, it well, creates a force like this, that the river of, of society is going like this, and then some group creates enough magnetism and really the river of the whole cult, culture moves over. You know, in the 1960s, the hippies changed the whole culture, and the Christians changed the whole culture, and the, the Renaissance, the um, Florence, changed the whole world. There's just these little pockets of time where everything moves over into that. And Ananda, really, and the movement that we represent has been one of those vortices. And a book like this, I mean, this book, conceivably, or, or other ideas inspired by this, directly or indirectly, will gradually create this vortex and the world will move over into it. Or at least enough individuals will move over into it that um, there will be salvation from chaos for them. You know, I mean, even now, I just don't know how people get along without a spiritual path and without a satsang, without fellowship or without community. I just don't know how they live. I sort of just like, it puzzles me. Like, how could they do it? Must be, and I think to myself, must be very lonely. You know, it must be very lonely, very confusing. 
So Swamiji is trying to be extremely practical in this book, and of course he's so seminal in the way he writes. I um, my habit is to read through a couple of times, and on the and one of the readings through, I I underline. I realize by the amount of, that I underline that I'm really underlining uh, just for myself because I end up underlining almost everything. <laughs> because among other things, the way Swamiji writes, is he just doesn't waste a word. And that's, you know, he edits over and over and over and over so, till every sentence and every word has a purpose. In fact, he was talking about how marvelous it would be to write a novel because, in fact, um, novels are often what create social change. I, w- I was watching the videos of the Civil War, for example, and Uncle Tom's Cabin really played a huge part in the history of uh, the abolition of slavery. I mean, the abolitionists were talking and talking, and then Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote that book in which it all became alive. It was fictionalized, but it was the true story, and that, that the direction of society is often changed by fiction. But Swamiji said he couldn't bear to write fiction because you have to just use so many words to no purpose. He went down the street, and then he went into the store, and when he got inside, he saw the person, and then the person was... And you have to describe, because when you, because he doesn't waste any words. Every word has some really specific idea that he's putting across. So Swamiji started last week, as we, as we were talking, sort of trying to get us oriented in the right direction and everything else, the rest of this book all follows from that and he constantly refers back to the fact that there is a center to reality and that center is in in the individual is in the individual and if we recognize that all that, that, that all of society and all of life really emanates from the individual's um, effort to find fulfillment and to live according to right principles and that all of society, everything that you organize that we call our culture, has to be, have, you have to pick it up by the right string. And historically, it's been picked up from the concept of society as some entity that could be moved around as an entity rather than from individuals who, who need to live rightly. And so he's just really flipping it over and saying if you run the whole thing from the point of view of what individuals need for their fulfillment, then actually everything else follows from that. And that part of the difficulty has been, as he says in here, that we're influenced by so many social systems and ideas and leaders who don't understand that. They don't see themselves in right relationship to what they're doing, and they don't see the people that they're guiding. And so the first thing Swami talks about here, once he really starts getting into this, is he really starts talking about leadership. Because over and over and over again, certainly through the years of Ananda, it's just everything comes down to the leader. And he, he, he makes a case for the, just for the simple necessity of a leader, and then he does a, a, just an extraordinary job of def- defining what a leader really is. So Amaji says this is a lesson he himself learned in a, a somewhat uh, ironic way. Because when he was in SRF, and Yogananda died, Master died, there was, he said, a great spirit in the air to organize things. And last week I talked a little bit how Master organized by magnetism. But once Master was no longer physically present, and unfortunately Rajasi died so soon after, there was just sort of this movement that we need to, to create some structures. And in fact, they did need to create some structures because people needed 
needed to be able to see and understand a little bit better. Not everyone could in, intuit completely. There was just needed a little bit more form. As Swami himself said, his incentive for organizing the monks was that he saw many good men who came to be monks, but there just wasn't enough support for them. And they just couldn't grasp it, and they, and they lost their vocation when with a little bit of help they could have. So Swamiji ended up in the position of being in charge of the meditation groups, the centers, the SRF centers. And he came up with a whole lot of the ideas of the, of the way things actually run now, where it was, all, Swami's organ, it was a, all of Swami's ideas. Even the simple idea that they should have Sunday, Sunday services on topics that they all agreed upon, so that all the SRF groups would all have um, their own topics, the same topic and um, I think he even started that. Rajasi was the one who approved that. Rajasi thought that was a good idea. And so Swamiji started developing all these systems for having them all function together. Well, up until that time, they had all been various direct disciples who functioned in the same way everything at SRF did by their direct connection to Master. And then Swamiji, who was just a young whippersnapper, really, and some of these... Uh, Centers were run by people like Kamala Silva and Mildred Hamilton and people who'd been around for a really long time. And this young Kriyananda is sort of telling him how they're supposed to do things and telling him that this is what we're going to read and this is how we're going to read it. And he made up this whole system for quoting out of the books. And as he said, it was a system he thought was very dynamic, but nobody else seemed to like it very much. And they resented him greatly for trying to impose. But his idea was um, to, this problem of leadership he, he, it's something he's contemplated his whole life, which is the problem of leadership, which is you only have a certain number of people who really in and of themselves have the charisma and the magnetism to make something coalesce. But if you could develop uh, some system that had inherent magnetism so that people could feel inspired regardless of who was running the Sunday service as a very specific example, then you could spread the work and it would be more dynamic. He had all these different ideas. So he worked diligently to make it work. And it, the, the whole concept totally failed. That's how he puts it. It just was a complete and absolute failure. And he had the perfect example was in Oakland. The SRF meditation group was run by Kamala Silva, who wrote the book, The Priceless Precepts and The uh, Flawless Mirror. She was a great direct disciple of Master. And Swamiji says partly, he says he thinks because of him, she retired <laughs> from that position. Um, because he was trying to force her to do things she didn't want to do. Um, and he said, overnight, the Oakland Center, which had been the best center they had, full of devotion, he said, wonderful disciples, went from being the best to the worst. Just as soon as she wasn't there anymore to define the energy, all his systems were absolutely no substitute for the magnetic charisma of the individual person. Now, the other side of that, and, and the... Is it, was it Thoreau or Emerson who ever said, who said any institution is the lengthened shadow of one man, that you always find that there's someone who's inspiring it. And Swami says it's not necessarily the person in charge, but there's somebody who's setting the magnetic um, spirit, and it's their magnetism that's making the whole thing happen. It can also sometimes, he said, be a group of people, but usually there's just one or two identifiable people that you can just look at and say, this is, this is why it works. And you pull them out and everything changes or falls apart. So Swamiji also has said about himself, having been a king for so many incarnations, he said leadership is so natural to him, 
it doesn't mean anything to him, and it's so natural to him, he just understands it so deeply. So he's read and written a number of books about leadership, trying as much as possible to get across to people an understanding of what leadership really is. Because so many people become leaders who are shudras or vaishas, um, and, and they're just either they're parasitical in what they're doing or they're just really in it for themselves. And that kind of leadership is what's destroying our world, really, pretty much. But there's this other kind of leader, and Swami says so many interesting things about it. And of course, he just uses Machiavelli as a background to just, because Machiavelli, without any necessity to understand him at all, epitomizes, I mean, his name has become an adjective or an adverb for a certain kind of action, which is ruthless and self-serving and power-grabbing and so on. And it's it's amazing to realize, as Swami lists out, you know, these famous historical figures who all read that book and, and were adherents of that and really followed that policy. I am the leader, and therefore it's about power. It's about imposing my will upon others and doing what I need to do in order to keep my position. I have my special role to play. It's all so Kali Yuga. It's so unegalitarian. It's so we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I mean, America was a revolution. Prior to that, you had these rulers, for the most part, who ruled. There was no, no real democracy anywhere. And rulers ruled by inheritance or by uh, military might or by divine decree, if they could sort of get that system going, or just by sheer power. And the whole idea was just power against power. So when he makes that statement, which is important to realize, it wasn't about uh, benefiting individuals. People didn't care. Wasn't, it was just the ruling class holding on to its position. There was none of this helping the underprivileged to rise, things that we just take so for granted because we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But it was never that way. But still, the concept of leadership, as it really relates, or the implications of it, and this is, again, um, where, why, why this book is important, that we have many unquestioned assumptions about the way we function that we don't, even, we don't even realize they're assumptions because we're fish swimming in water. And one of them is about leadership, you know, that, we, that you have to have power, that it's about imposing upon others, that there's privileges to leadership, that uh, you know, just all the different things that uh, Swami addresses indirectly or directly in this. And he tries to he says it so many times, but if you really contemplate it, it's very interesting. Leadership is a skill. Leadership is a job. And, and he says it in the simplest way. The leader need not have any special skills of his own, but he just has to have a talent for finding the right people and bringing people together. And it's, it's very interesting because you know people are of different styles, and some people really are more... Um, creative artists of their own, so to speak, whether they're really artists or not, but they like to do it themselves, and that's their pleasure in life. And so such people in leadership positions always have to sort of walk a fine edge because it's not, they don't enjoy giving it away. They enjoy being the one who gets to express their ideas and do it their way, whereas other leaders are just people who enjoy getting everybody together to make it happen. And, and they can be exceedingly skillful at that without being apparently uh, that exceptionally skillful in any other way. 
But, but you see what a tremendous ability that is. But then Swami emphasizes it's a skill that can be acquired by paying attention to the technique of it. And it's a very, very important because in any environment that we're in, and Sarah even points out, we're always the leader of our own little thoughts, our own little band of rebellious citizens within us that also have to be inspired by magnetism and by right consciousness to go ahead and do the right thing. But we always find ourselves in positions where we have to make decisions for others. And it's in the, the style of leadership that Swami describes, and he spends some time working to sort of explain it, that uh, I don't, he says, I don't want to set the bar too high. And he also says that this style of leadership only works when you're working with people who will essentially work with you. And otherwise, sometimes you have to use different principles because the people you're working with are just not going to uh, be responsive to anything really subtle. Um, are there any comments or questions? I've sort of galloped through this without even stopping. Every single sentence in this is really um, beneficial. And that was sort of, I was really reading from this. First he talks about just the absolute necessity of leadership, which I think I've mentioned here. And he again, Swami has often raised the theory. He said, there's no, I love this phrase, there's no example in nature of a successful anarchy. And he says, even groups of people, if you try to do it in a leaderless manner, which people do sometimes out of theory, that it would be a good idea. He says, you only end up with you know, very low energy consensus decisions that are generally arrived at after so much talk that people will make any decision at all just to have the conversation cease. Which if you've ever been involved in any situation where everybody had to agree before you can go forward, you understand that. So he talks about the, um, um, just the, the necessity for, for one individual at least to um, focus the energy. Let me just sort of let me get the focused here. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. But part of, part of how he dis- defines leadership, which is, is very interesting in this context, has to do with that simple concept of what are we trying to create. I think in a, it was in a, my Saturday class that I was talking about this a lot when we were talking about prayer. Because many people's conversation about the question of how to pray and what is effective prayer and so on it all traced back to having to being unclear on some basic concepts. In that case, it was really what is the divine and what is my relationship with God. And then when, we, when you try to have a conversation with a consciousness that you're not clear about, then you don't really know what to say. It's just like being with someone that you don't know very well or in a culture where you don't know the customs and you just don't know how to respond because you may be doing things that are um, not done. It's very confusing. And Swamiji talks about leadership in that same way that a great deal of the difficulty and the reason people are bad leaders is because they don't understand the first premises, which is about individuals and themselves included. They either see the people that they're relating to inaccurately or they see themselves in an inaccurate way. And so what what he's saying is we have to really understand what our true objective is. And what's interesting about all of this is he's entirely talking about Ananda. He's talking about himself, and he's talking about the way Ananda has run all these years. And even though he, he simply says these ideas have been proven true without really talking about the success of the community or anything like that, that's exactly what he's describing. And as I read through all this, I can't help but think of sort of all the different instances in which... 
it's Swami always would 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 always look first to the individuals and just what is their consciousness and what is good for them and and realizing that there is no project except the development of the consciousness of individuals and he makes a great emphasis here on a very interesting point which is that the leader himself or herself has to also ask what will this do to me will this be good for me and i know once when swamiji was just giving us uh, those of us who have responsibilities in ananda sort of list of things once he 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 very strongly emphasized in a way this was before he wrote this in a way that most of us hadn't really heard before that whenever you face a difficult decision you have to also ask what would be spiritually right for me if i'm making that decision i mean perhaps an individual may need a certain kind of response for uh it just would be appropriate but if it's inappropriate for you to offer that kind of response it's better to let the situation go unanswered because if if at any point in that what the principle we're talking about is where there is dharma there is victory and he uses the example what if sternness is called for but if the effort to be stern in that way would cause you to lo- to become unkind or uncharitable or to lose the connection soul to soul with that person better just not not to respond in that way even though the situation calls for it now what he's saying there is that if that that the any institution is the lengthened shadow of the individuals who are leading it and if those individuals act consciously in a way that does not further the spiritual growth of themselves or anyone involved then you set up a vibration that warps it now in in the short term it's very hard to see how things will work and i know in the early years the very early years of ananda i mean the very early years i and i remember others where it was just so easy to be critical why doesn't somebody do something about this but there was the only way something could be done about it would have been for for other individuals to put out a kind of consciousness which would not have, have fostered their own understanding of things what to speak of actually help helping the people around them so you have to have a very clear idea and as swami describes it everybody's looking for self fulfillment everybody's looking for that pathway which will give them what they're truly seeking and so you you have to start with a certain understanding of what is it that will really make me happy and what is it that i'm truly seeking and that's partly why swami ji is really writing this for a very small circle of people with the idea that if a small circle of people can develop a refined enough understanding and work together to create it through communities or by other means then that will create a vortex there's a there's a a mistake that he doesn't specifically mention it here but he mentions it in other places that leaders often make the mistake of thinking that the way to move the group forward is to try to take the people at the very bottom and inch them upward and our culture our our country has become more and more focused in that that direction you you take the the least privileged the the most uh despairing the, the least capable and you try to do something with them and yes you can move them a little bit i know somebody once described a certain movie as the touching story of a shudra becoming a vaisha you know which is somebody who is a completely uh, a, a, a peasant in his consciousness becoming self-serving you know that was that was progress or another one was a complete lunatic becoming almost normal 
You know, and that's a little bit of what we're working with. Whereas, in fact, what really changed, and that's one of the reasons why our culture is falling apart, is because there's no, no leading edge. There's no core that's really showing the way. And so you, if you're astute as a leader, you really take those people who have the potential to go far with what you're trying to do, and you build that core group because they'll pull everyone else along. Whereas if you just build the, the bottom of the heap, they never move forward enough to lead anything. It's not that they're not worthwhile as individuals if that's what you're called to do, but from the point of view of making the whole thing work. And that's where, again, the question is, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? We're trying to accomplish to create a, an energy in which many, many individuals can grow. And you see, this goes back to what I was talking about last week, to create that vibration of attunement that, will, that, will, that people will just be able to walk into. And so a leader has to start with himself. He has to start with keeping his own awareness as it ought to be. And Swami makes a a great jump in here. He says, the leader has to ask himself, how far am I willing to go for my principles? Am I willing to die for what I believe? He just sort of throws that in in the middle when you don't really realize, think that that's what the stakes are. But it's an interesting statement. And he further adds that if you're not really willing to die for the principles you believe in, you'll always be a little nervous because you'll always be a little afraid of death. I, you know, it's just, the paragraph just sort of walks into the middle of the book and you sort of think, what have I gotten myself into here? You know, I was just trying to learn to run my company a little better or, you know, run my office. But what he's actually saying there is you have to have, you have to be profoundly and deeply rooted in what you really believe, number one, so that you can be properly guided so that you can take all the situations that come to you and have them have some really clear light to hold them up against. against. Danny Levin told a very interesting story this way when he was um, working as the sales representative for Ananda uh, Publications, for Crystal Clarity Publications, it was called. And Swami Kriyananda was just writing the little secrets books. I mean, the, the small books that are secrets for this, so for love, for marriage, for friendship, for women, for men. And it was a big sort of moment in the development of Crystal Clarity because those books were really selling a lot and Ananda was making a lot more money than we'd ever made and it was a very exciting sort of period. And we had a couple of distributors that we had some exclusive contracts with to distribute some of our books. In certain areas it was exclusive. And then Danny was approached by, uh, I think it was Price Club, Costco, Price Club and Costco, and because there was a little bit of a, a buzz going around some of these books Swami had written, they were interested in buying, you know, in quantities that in our wildest dreams we'd never had imagined. However, their offer contradicted the agreement we had with this other distributor who had, who had been a friend to us. It wasn't just a casual relationship, and we'd had it for a while. And Danny was just a little bit in a dilemma because it was such an opportunity being asked and it was being blocked by something relatively, comparatively speaking, that was not so remunerative for us. And he started asking different people in the trade what he ought to do. And the first question every single person asked was how much money is at stake? And after after Danny had been through that a few times, he finally realized that what they were saying is, is this your price? Will you sell your principles? Is, it, is, is the price big enough that you'll sell your principles for it? 
And as soon as he really realized that that was the question being asked, he knew that we just couldn't take it. Because it, there, you either have a price or you don't have a price. You can't say. And I recall, where did I... Oh, it was actually Swamiji who said it. And the Swamiji was living out his own reality here when he was talking about sometimes you have to be cunning against cunning enemies. I have no idea what the context was, but it had something to do with offering someone a bribe. And I don't think we were actually... I don't remember now whether it was a theoretical or an actual question about bribing. But uh, I remember Swami specifically saying that you should start with a very high bribe. You know, you should just find out if the person is bribable right away by offering them a very high bribe. And it was another one of those things where he was just telling us, you know, if you're going to buy a spy, if you're going to get somebody to be a double agent and do what you want them to do, then you pay them a lot. Because if they're going to do it, you know, don't offer them just a little. You have to find out if they're really going to do it. But it was the same question. In other words, does this person have conscience or not? And as soon as Danny realized that it was just a question of price, he knew we couldn't do it. Because where there is right action, where there is dharma, there is victory. And where there is not, there is not, period. It's not that, you, that it's okay if it's a million dollars. It's not okay if it's only um, 25,000, right? But that's what Swami's sort of throwing in there which is because to be this kind of leader, you have to have an enormous amount of faith in your own principles because it's much more difficult. The, the, the reason leadership that's based either on I'm important and you better listen to me or I have power and I'm going to exercise it over you is because in the short term, it's just easier because this is the kind of leadership that has to wait for people to develop and that has to love people. He throws that in at the very end, and it's very interesting, isn't it? He said what they don't take into account is the power of love and the energy. And he emphasizes also, you can only be this kind of leader if you genuinely respect other people. And if you don't genuinely respect it, it's very difficult to carry out because your instincts will be wrong and your magnetism will be wrong. And, and so this is, it's a fascinating sort of uh, challenge to the individual. I'm going to take a break at this point, a little bit early, but let's take a 10-minute break. Steve, is that a question? Is there a question behind that face? <laughs> okay. Any thoughts or comments? Well, yes. Um, this isn't directly related to what you're talking about, but you know, this idea of the, the perspective of people from other countries about America and Americans is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. There are a number of ways to look at it, and you alluded to them. But also, I think that this is a generalization, but people in Europe, of course, have a different perspective on conflict and on their relation to the rest of the world. And I think particularly in light of the history of certain countries in Europe having had empires or smatterings of empire in recent times that within our lifetime have dissolved, there's a certain sense of guilt that still exists within these societies about what they did for them. Oh, Steve, you're going in a direction I can't possibly go. I mean, I, it's an interesting discussion, but it's not one I can have. <laughs> no, I understand. I actually wasn't. That's as far okay. as I was going to go. Okay, you better go somewhere that I can go then. <laughs> The reason I'm saying it is this. 
people have all sorts of opinions. And the concept of a just war that Swami is talking about in this chapter and in this book is a valid concept. And I think it's very helpful the way he describes it because in a larger picture, what limits us oftentimes is either our individual experiences or let's say larger group experiences that taint our perspective. And it's also what keeps us, it's the same thing that keeps us from reaching out to God. It's, it's a certain type of fear. Can, I think there's some place I can go with this. Can I go with this? Sure. In um, Education for Life, Swamiji says that the goal of education, Education for Life is about educating children. But since we're all children compared to God-realized masters, there's a lot in it that applies. And he again follows this same premise that he uses in all his books. If you're clear on your objective, it's much easier to get there. If you don't really know what your objective is, then you get very confused about how to get there. Um, that's why he, when he says here, he makes it very clear. The objective, of the, the, the objective of the leader is fulfillment for the leader and for the people he's serving. And, so you, and then you have to define what is fulfillment, what does that mean, and then it's much more clear to know how to get there because you weigh everything against that. Um, annihilation of your way of life would make fulfillment difficult. And, you know, during the Second World War when um, the countries were being invaded and their freedoms were being taken away and the system of government was disharmonious with their values, um, they were not going to be fulfilled by avoiding war, even though avoiding war would, was a better road to fulfillment uh, than getting into war, but allowing themselves to be taken over by uh, a mad leader who would destroy their way of life. And that's where Swami says difficult choices had to be made. Um, so in Education for Life, he's talking about the difficulty with education for children these days is that it's primarily driven by this concept of getting uh, an education so that you can get a job, so that you can get money. Um, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but it's actually quite pertinent to this. I read something in the San Jose Mercury. They had a little section at Christmas time, and, and they sort of put out this questionnaire, and children had said, what do I want for Christmas? I didn't cut this one out, but I should have. A 13-year-old child wrote something that was essentially like this. I'm 13 years old. I'm just a child. I would like to have a little fun. The problem is, I, my parents have told me that in order to have fun when I'm grown up, I have to have a lot of money or at least enough money. And the only way I can have enough money is if I have a good enough job. And in order to have a good enough job, I have to have a good education and I have to get into a good school. So now I have to be thinking all the time about my my homework and my education and getting into college. Um, and so I feel pressured all the time. I try to have fun because after all, I'm just a kid, but I have to think like this, so that's what I want for Christmas. Now, I mean, that was just like the epitome of Silicon Valley. That is not at all exceptional, what I just said. You know, we run a school here, so we know a lot about how people think about these things. Um, because it's just being very unclear on the concept. I mean, the concept that you want to have fun is not a bad concept, but it's like, how did we get here? It's because we got so mixed up and so externalized about what we think it's going to give us 
right values. So Swamiji says the goal of education is, is and, then he, and then of course he discusses how if you don't have peace, you don't have anything. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have, have honor and peace within you and balance and all the things that you can obviously say. But he said the goal of education is to develop true maturity. You've heard this before. True maturity is, and then he says, well, what is true maturity? True maturity is the ability to relate to realities other than one's own. In other words, to get along in the world. Because with all that people are educated, they don't know how to be married, they don't know how to be employees, they don't know how to be leaders, they don't, often don't know how to work, they don't know how to cope with disappointment, they don't know how to persevere. You know, all of these things, because it's all been externalized. They don't know how to relate to any reality but the little reality they're in. But if you can relate to realities other than your own, then you can interact with the world around you. So where on earth was I going with that? What did you ask me? Okay, you tell me what that, how that relates to what you said. You were talking about what? Oh, just wars. As far as perspective, if you can't relate to somebody else's reality, you may have a difficult time understanding where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing. Right. That wasn't exactly what I was going to say, but that's just good enough. No, I had something else that was more pertinent, though. Where, what was I thinking? Well, I guess that is essentially it, which is what... Um, right. We're just, we're, we're just all raised in these tiny little bubbles, and we don't, we're, not, we're not taught to see the world from any perspective but our own. I had something more useful to say, but I have totally lost it, so we'll just have to wait till it comes back. Sorry. When I started, I really knew it. Now I lost it. What a shame. All right. <laughs> exactly. It's just, but it's how people are. And, and that's really the mess that we're in. People can't see it from any point of view but their own. It's just ghastly. But not really, because here we are. Look at us, working our little hearts out to make it better. Raising children and raising ourselves just to, to know what it is that we're really trying to find in life and, and uh, trying to establish enclaves where people have an idea of what's true. But it's so difficult. You're working against so much because th- this, this idea of happiness coming from the outside is so profoundly inculcated into us and the fear of uh, financial liability and the fear of lack of success. It's just so... Uh, overwhelming and not untrue because there's no, there's no uh, supportive system and that's where communities the small community solution is really hope for a better world you see it breaks the whole cycle it gives people um, family gives people spirituality it gives people security um, just you know all of you know many of you know Jacqueline whose husband died suddenly last Sunday did you know that you knew that Peggy yeah suddenly last Sunday he died and I mean, the whole, she has this whole community that's taking care of her. You know, she's a, if she was living somewhere else, she'd just be essentially alone, maybe with a few friends or something like that. But it's just like, it, community does that over and over and over again. And it, it just cuts through this whole problem of, but I have to take care of myself, but I have to have my job, but I have to have my home, but I have to have this. Because you are insecure. And, and who will take care of you? And also you live in a world in which everybody tells you that you're insecure. But if you live in a community or a part of a spiritual family, 
you're reinforced continuously until that becomes your own reality. And that's again talking about leadership. You know, the, the Machiavellian model is that I just make these people do whatever it is that my objective is. The model for the better world is that the leader's job is to help people attain what it is that they really want to attain. And they help, you help them attain it by being very clear yourself and by consistently acting in such a way that it encourages them. And Swami makes so much of a point, and I've certainly seen it in his life over all these years, is uh, you can't force people to understand this by its very nature. And that's the most difficult thing at all, of all, absolutely the most difficult. I speak from years and years of experience. It's the hardest thing to not just step over that and try to persuade them. He said, you can, you can try, to, try, to, try to force them to understand you. And to just be able to stand back and say they don't understand, and even more than that, to, to encourage people to come to it in their own way and in their own time. And we all know that in our lives. That's the, that's the hardest thing about raising children, about being married. It's just even when you know they're wrong. But if, to, to recognize, and this is one of the fundamental skills of leadership, to recognize that they're not going to understand it and you just need to let them run it through. And, and to be the kind of leader who has that kind of faith in other people and that kind of respect for them and that kind of just calmness in themselves that you can just see that and just recognize that it's going to be okay and they'll just let it work itself out. And, it's, I mean, the experience of Ananda has really proved it. People, we just wait and it's a very long cycle. I know how many times over the years, I remember once Swami just said to me so simply, Asha, it takes time for people to learn the right attitude. Just that. And I think, well, huh, it's taken me a little while, you know, like decades, to learn some very fundamental things. So why am I surprised that it takes other people 10, 15, 20 years to learn something? It really does. But Swami's incredible genius as a leader, which he's just acted out to perfection, is that he just waits. He just holds on with this faith that it's going to work and then creates the atmosphere that we were talking about last week where the, the truth emanating from the source is so strong that you sort of stay on course even though you're off course. You sort of like you have an erratic orbit but you never really break your orbit. You, you stay just like the way the planets and the whole solar system is held together by this force that's pulling outward and then the force that's pulling inward, both of them together. And you kind of stay close enough in the orbit until you gradually get your system worked out. And this is the kind of leadership that results, as Swami said in the last chapter, if you, if you create direction by dominating people's willpower and sooner or later they get themselves together and they strike back. He talked even in this Machiavellian system, for a long time they'll be too afraid, but gradually they'll become so angry that they won't be afraid anymore, they'll just do it. And that's what you see all over, you know, abusive systems, and then gradually people just gather their strength. Maybe it takes a a generation or two, but they gather gather their strength and they strike back. But if if the leader has won people's love, and even more than that, if the leader has created a reality in which they themselves have embraced the same principles if you're clear on the concept, if you know where you're going. What is my goal? The goal has never been to use Ananda as the example because it's the example that I know. And 
the goal has never been to build Ananda. And when years ago, the goal has always been to create self-realization in individuals, to provide the opportunity for individuals to advance towards self-realization. And Ananda has been a means to that end rather than an end in itself. And so every decision that's made favors the individual. People, as Swami writes, people are more important than things. He puts in this chapter two of Ananda's fundamental mottos. He, he puts it in English, where there's right action, where there's truth, there is victory. We say where there is dharma, there is victory. And, where, and people are more important than things. Now, you, you really have to think those things through, but that is the basis. And the third one, which it really is not articulated as such, is that you have to be practical. Master said you have to be practical in your idealism. And Swami makes a big point of that. And he, he doesn't make it as a, a divine law. That was something Master said to him. You have to be practical in your idealism. But Swami spends a long time talking about the fact that sometimes you just have to do things that you just wouldn't, don't want to do because it's the only choice that you have. It can't be worked out in any other way. And so you have that principle. You have the principle of being willing to die before you will compromise what you truly believe in. And if it's not physical death, sometimes you, you just can't do. You can't go on doing what you were doing. I mean, I hear such horror stories from people. A friend of mine uh, who's a lawyer, you know, just having to leave um, at least one, if not two firms, because people just asked her to do dishonorable things. And she wasn't tempted, but she was just so... Uh, I mean, she, she was never going to do it, but she was just so dismayed that it would just be assumed that it would be just fine for her to do that. So she faced death, in that case, which is termination of her rela- professional relationship. So sometimes it's not really physical death that you're being asked to face, but the, the willingness to lose, apparently lose, whatever it is that you were working with because... Uh, you're, you're having to violate a principle. And that's, uh, uh, someone was saying to me, forgive me, I can't remember who walked up and said it, but you have to be a kshatriya to be a leader. But yes, that's, that's what the kshatriya class is. The kshatriya class is the leadership class. You were the one who said it. The kshatriyas are the soldiers and the kings. Of course, in our culture, vaishas are in charge. Vaishas are, are the ones who are in it for themselves. And that's what you see all over the place. You see all these vaishas who've gotten themselves into the positions of being leaders. And their entire thought is, how much more can I get for myself? Ironically, speaking of other countries, our same friends in India, a few years ago, this must have been at least three or four or five years ago, there was some huge scandal in India because it was revealed the the level of the self-enriching that some of the politicians were doing. You know, they had taken millions of dollars out of the country and put it in Switzerland and other places and my Indian friend, in their way, she was so funny, she said, we knew, of course, they were taking something, but so much. <laughs> you know, it was just like, but naturally, I mean, that. what else do you do? They themselves have benefited, the, our friends, because one of the leading politicians in Delhi had a house just beyond where they had theirs, and all of a sudden, they had this four-lane road all the way to their house because it was some miles from Delhi and the road had been narrow and not that good and now they have one of the best roads in all of India because that's where that man had his house. I mean, that's just, you know, sort of like it's the given. But they were shocked at the level. It was just so much beyond. 
But how many leaders, and then Swami says this, you have to understand the leader has to be humble, but he he says it also so clearly, not in the context of of being self-effacing or self-doubting, because then he says your leadership is all caught up in your own sense of doubt. In other words, it's all about yourself. But humble and just recognizing this is a job that just has to be done. And having the principle that I'm here for others. And, you know, it's just so... There's such a myth to having that power and position that, that just motivates people. Oh, if I could only be in charge, I would get to do it my way. Swami says, my God, the, the person, the least satisfied person in any situation is always the leader because he has to compromise everything for everybody else. That's why uh, you know, certain types of people who really like to have it done their way really are, are often not good leaders because they just... It's not satisfying to them to just watch everybody else sort of figure it out when they've already figured it out. And other people get great satisfaction from that. Or, as Swami says, a leader can train himself to be satisfied. But the leader, too, has to be that kind of person who wants to learn and is willing to sort of look at it honestly and see, you know, where is this going and what am I going to do? But we all have an obligation, and I'm going to sort of talk a few minutes about this and then I'll let it go for tonight. All of us who have any understanding of self-realization, we owe it to God and Guru to learn more about leadership. It's not enough to just say, oh, well, you know, it's not really my job. We all are leaders. We're all leading someone because there's so many people behind us who are just learning self-realization and we have to lead them. That's our job. When, when Master was, Master's original lessons about self-realization were he just exhorted his disciples to take responsibility for leading others to this way of living. And I don't mean that you necessarily give them auto- copies of Autobiography of a Yogi. Although, Master, I don't remember what the number was, but he said, you should be giving away copies of Autobiography of Yogi. And he said something like five or six a week or whatever it was. But you, know, you should really be doing it. He wasn't sort of passively saying, just wait and let people find you. He was saying, stand up for what you believe and Look for opportunities to tell people. Maybe you're not, maybe you're in a situation where nobody cares per se, but everybody cares about the principles of self-realization because they're the principles of personal fulfillment. And we all, we all have to be leaders because if not us, who? You know, there's a handful of disciples. How do you think this work is going to spread? And so the principles that he's describing here in terms of how we live our own lives um, it's vitally important that we accept this. It's fundamental to our discipleship. And we have to, we have to really meditate on these leadership principles and really meditate on, in our interactions with people. It's, it's amazing to me. You, you break them, you have trouble. <laughs> it's really simple. And every trouble that you have, you find it back here in this book or in one of other Swami's other books about leadership. It's just straight up. It's not even slightly mysterious. Leadership is a skill and these are the techniques. You don't do it this way then people rebel because they have their own individual consciousness and they don't like to be treated like that. They want to be treated, they want to have time to find their own way, and they want to be treated with respect. And if you try to get them to cooperate with you by any other means, they won't do it. And it's, it's, very, uh, um, it's very non-productive. And one of the things that Ananda is really trying to establish and We've been here 30-some years now, so we can't establish it. It does work. 
You know, you can bring together, and people are very interested sometimes about, you know, what an interesting collection of folk have given their lives to Ananda, and how individualized and, and just peculiar. But it's all entirely a tribute to Swami Kriyananda and Master's power through him and the technique of leadership he's used. He just describes himself. He describes exactly how he's done it. And he's describing exactly how Master did it. Master was so non-interfering. On one hand, Master had all this power, this tremendous power that he could have exerted. He had all this authority. He had all this power. He had absolute total knowledge of every person that he was dealing with. He knew every thought that everyone was thinking. And yet what he'd do was just hint and then let them find their way. Because if they didn't find their own way, they weren't really there. They weren't doing it. And in fact, there's a. Um, it, it's almost like many people don't want that kind of leader. And that's one, among the many reasons why self-realization is not such a mass movement, is because we don't lead by taking, other, taking responsible for other people. And I used to tease Swamiji, and he himself said, you know, people are always wanting him to tell them what to do. He's not going to tell them what to do. Tell them who to marry, what job to take, where to go. He says, I'm no yentl. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And he said, I'm not going to tell people what to do. Of course, if you ask, he'll, he'll give you some principles, and, and he might give you some guidance, but he's not going to tell you what to do. Because what good would it do? It would just take away the very things that is the goal of leadership. The goal of leadership is for people to come to their own understanding of things. And um, uh, let me think, what was I going to say there? I lost a thought. Oh, but over the years, we've just really seen that, that people can come to their own understanding of things. And it was just so, it's so marvelous to watch it over a long period of time because people will... And he said, oh, I was talking about how Master was like this. Swamiji writes in his autobiography, as much as possible, Master allowed people to live out their fantasies. That's just such a chilling phrase, isn't it? As much as possible, he allowed them to live out their fantasies. And you just have this vision of someone who, who tells you what to do and says, this is how you're going to be saved and this is how you act. No, no, as much as possible, he let you just live out your fantasies. Because if you don't absolutely know where your fulfillment lies, nobody can tell you. How many people marry incorrectly, follow the wrong professions, make the wrong choices in life, and everybody's told them they shouldn't do it, but they don't know it until they do it. And, and then, fortunately, the devotee is never lost. If you have any wisdom now, it's because you've done it. And Master said, everything that you're not attracted to do nowadays, now, is because you've done it in the past. I mean, that's rape, murder, forgery, you know, extortion. I mean, I'm just using really bad examples. Alcoholism, drug addiction, suicide. Everything you're not doing is because you've tried it. And it's just, it's just the mind just doesn't quite know what to do with that. But if you think about it in the microcosm, you see it's true. Every, everything that you had to learn by experience in this lifetime, when everybody told you that you didn't need to have that experience, you could have just learned it if you'd listened to them, but you had to have the experience. And then you just know. You're just not drawn to it. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And so nobody has to remind me anymore. You know, I'm not, I'm not really interested in a diet of hostess Twinkies. It's just like, it doesn't work for me. I know for a solid fact that the, it's not going to work for me. Nobody has to persuade me of it. But there are people out there 
who are just, you know, living on Twinkies. And it, and it doesn't matter who tells them they're going to live on Twinkies until they suffer the terrible ill effects of it and then will gradually understand. And Or living on anger or living on... on uh, trying to make yourself safe in the world without God. Right? And so a leader's job is to vibrate it and help when it's appropriate and have the faith and the respect of people to let them go on and to welcome them back every time. There was one wonderful man at Ananda who left for 10 years from Ananda village. And he went way off. He, you know, did several businesses. He married. He did all kinds of things. This was when Ananda was Ananda village. And he was an integral person and still is. He just went on this very long cycle. And you would have thought at some point Swami would have said something like, what are you doing? Because he wasn't doing anything that was good for himself. But instead, every time Swami would meet with him, which was periodically during those ten years, um, his, uh, uh, I often sat in on those discussions and his, his discussion with the man was always first to sort of find out what that man's own sense of what he was doing was and what his intentions were. And there, were, and there would be this, and, and this man never, never knew what was going on. I, was, I sat there. For some reason, I was almost always in those discussions. And uh, Swami would just sort of ask, you know, like, how's the business going? How's the marriage going? I mean, not, not, not like a quiz, but he would e- evoke it. And when he would see that the man was still committed to that direction, then Swami made it seem as if that's what he wanted him to do. Even though he didn't want him to do any of that. He thought it was just a complete waste of his time, really. But it was more important to just maintain the relationship. And he says that in here somewhere about if in acting that way you would lose the contact and the respect if you were too stern. So Swami just had to keep the relationship and he just went through it and finally after 10 years the man had, like, you know, had lost the business and lost the marriage and was sort of, sort of beginning to talk a little bit more about maybe this was not really such a good plan. And when he sort of started talking that then Swami said, well, you know, maybe it wasn't. Maybe this is the time to turn. But he never spoke a word of that in between. I mean, so much so, as I say, that the man didn't even know that what Swami's, quote, true feelings were. But they weren't really his true feelings. His true feelings were to stand by him as he learned what he needed to learn. His sense of, is this really going to, in and of itself, take you where you're going, was no. But if that's what you have to do, we'll do it. I mean, that's real leadership. What is that really? That's real friendship. What is that most profoundly? That's real love. And that's where Swami ends, interestingly, this chapter on leadership, doesn't he? I mean, he starts with Machiavelli and he ends at the end. He's talking about love. And he says the difficulty that what people don't take into account is they don't take into account the power of love. And that the real power of this world is not force, but love. Because, again, I'll look at the world that, we've, that I've lived in all this time with Swamiji. What has held Ananda together it's just this, somehow this certainty of Swami's love for us and our love for him, our love for Master. What held, what held Mount Washington together? People's love for Master. Our love for Master that is somehow manifested through this community, this, some sense of it. 
but that's the principles of leadership that he's talking about because that's what we're loving. We're loving the truth. We're loving the principles sufficiently to die for them. And, and those lead us to loving one another. It's not really primarily one another that we love in a personal sense. He says that. That leads to favoritism and toadyism, you know. But it's a much more impersonal kind of love that, that, that's not dry, even though it sounds like that. But it's much more constant. Just like when Master left Sri Yukteswar and uh, he, he, he went off to the Himalayas, and uh, when Master writes that in the autobiography, it makes it seem like it was weeks. It was actually a year. Master was gone for a year. Which makes that story more interesting because it makes it all the more remarkable that when he just walked back into the ashram after being gone all that time, Sri Yukteswar said, oh, well, welcome back. And Yogananda said, are you, but aren't you angry at me? Sri Yukteswar said, anger comes when desires are thwarted. I want nothing but your best welfare. You know, what other, how, how could I be angry? Then, it's a, it's a fascinating story, and it's, it's again, it's a principle of leadership, isn't it? So now that Yogananda had returned, what was there to be angry about? He was still moving forward. That's what counted. But you see what um, self-discipline that takes, and that's why Swami said, "I'm not going to set the bar too high, but uh, the bar is set very high." I can speak from experience on that. You have to work very, very hard. But then, it's a job, and all jobs are for self-transformation. And so this one, I mean, it's a very good job in that respect, because uh, it's, you know, it's just very demanding. And that's why you have it. That's why when Swami told Yogi Ramya about Dayamata's job, and uh, all the responsibility that she had running SRF, Yogi Ramya said, oh, what a burden. And Swamiji said, well, is it her bad karma then that she has this job? And he said, no, no, because for her, it will help her get to God-realization. But uh, for someone else, it could be a burden. You know, for Yogi Ramya, it would have been a burden, (laughs) because it wasn't what he needed to do. But that's, again, where the leader has to also, as Swamiji said to us, you can't be so proud that you don't think your own realization isn't also at issue here. You know, you have to also recognize that you, too, have something to learn and must work with it. So, anyway, those are some thoughts. Any comments or questions? Steve, before we end? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I didn't serve you very well this evening. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. Anything else? All right. Let's see. Next week we read two chapters. We read four and five, I believe. Yes, four and five.